you have a handout. Um, today we're going to spend all of our time on the front page. On the second and third pages, you have a whole bunch of references. Please don't think that I came up with all these. These are from Dr. Essex. I did not come up with all these. The reason I included those is because I told you that Luke and Acts have a lot of similarities, and these are the similarities between Luke and Acts. These are the themes that they have in common. And so I gave you a whole bunch of them so you could see they really do have a lot in common. Um, I don't think there's really a point in me going through and talking about all of these. I think we've already discussed themes for both Luke and Acts, and I don't think we need to go through all of these references. When, If you would like to do that, you can go home and look them up and... So today we're just going to be focusing on the front page, the interpretive problems. We're going to do Luke, and then we're going to look at Acts as well. Okay, And there's four for each. I did leave some of the interpretive problems out, just because some of them are ridiculous. Like one of them is, is Luke writing actual history, or did he make it up? Well, let's, let's do the first one here. The first one really uh, isn't talking about the book of Luke. It's talking about Luke himself. Luke and Paul's history slash theology, is it contradictory or is it complementary? And basically what they're saying is when Luke writes, some of his material doesn't seem to match what Paul writes. And it seems like there's contradictions between the two. And so they ask the question, is Luke a, a re reliable, is he an accurate historian, or is he contradicting Paul and proving himself to be false? He was talking to the Jews. I mean, the Gentiles. Who was talking to the Gentiles? Luke. That's Luke. the answer, right? He's targeting Gentiles. He, yes, that is okay. true. That's the answer. Okay, good. <laughs> okay, um, yeah, so their key text that they point to here is Acts 15 and Galatians 2. Anybody remember what happened in Acts 15? It's the, be right there. it's the Jerusalem Council. What was the main issue talked about at the Jerusalem Council? Yes. Do Gentiles need to become Jews in order to be saved? That was their main topic at the Jerusalem Council. So Paul writes about the Jerusalem Council in Galatians 2. Now I'm going to break every rule of doing slides and I'm going to put up a whole bunch of information on a chart. See, I just broke all the rules. But I'm doing that, doing it that way because I want you to see these are some similarities. And I just want to show you the similarities just so you can see them and you can recognize that, well, there are similarities between the two. And he gets his historical facts correct. And then we'll talk about what are some of the supposed contradictions and we'll see if those are actually contradictions. So, let me see here. I thought I had this marked. But I don't. John MacArthur would have found it faster. You're right. John MacArthur uses tabs. <laughs> just, just saying. Okay, so in Acts 15, verses 2 and 3, Paul and Barnabas go to Jerusalem. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, uh, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some of the others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles. This same thing is said in Galatians 2, verses 1 and 2, 
Galatians 2.1, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. Same historical account. Verses 3 and 4 of Acts 15, Paul tells the brethren that what God was doing for him, or doing for the Gentiles. Uh, Acts 15, verse 3, Therefore being sent out on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. And Paul, in verse 2, repeats the same information. And he says, the ex- says it in a different way. It was because of a revelation that I went up and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but I did so in private. Verse 5 of Acts 15, Paul's opposed by Pharisees. Some of the sects of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying it was necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. That's the key issue of the Jerusalem Council. Should we make Gentiles become circumcised. And Paul deals with the same issue in Galatians 2, verses 3 and 4. He says, But not even Titus, who is with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty. He doesn't mention the Pharisees, but he mentions the exact same issue that's discussed. Uh, 25 through 27 in Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas are sent to the Gentiles. Verse 9 of Galatians 2, same thing. Paul and Barnabas are then sent to the Gentiles. Can you see some similarities here? Paul and Luke aren't in disagreement here. They agree perfectly with one another. Their historical details are consistent. But there are some areas where they have what appears to be differences. Why would they have differences in what they write? They're different people, different no, perspectives. Said writing to different people. No, oh. They're different people okay, they're different people writing. They're writing to different people. So both of those would be true. They have different perspectives. They have different goals and purposes. Paul is writing a letter to a church to teach and to instruct. Luke is writing a historical narrative to give information about events. They have different goals and purposes in writing. And so they're going to focus on different things. If we all leave this class and someone comes up to John and says, Hey, John, tell me about class. He's going to give his answer. Well, if someone goes to Jessica and asks the same question, she's going to give her answer. Are they? Well, they're going to say different things. Are they lying now because they have different stories? No, they're just focusing on two different things. What are some of these contradictions? Um, here's one. Why did Paul go to Jerusalem? Did he go to Jerusalem because he received a revelation from God, or did he go to Jerusalem because the church sent him? Acts 15, verse 2. Huh? He appealed to Caesar. I mean, he was, he was sent to Rome to appeal... You know, I've got to go to Rome now. You know, you right. made these false accusations against mm-hmm. me. I'm a Roman citizen, therefore bring me before Caesar. Yeah. You're you're a little ahead of us in the book of Acts. Uh-oh. This is his first trip down to Jerusalem. Oh, um okay, okay. in in Acts fifteen. That's okay. That's that's good. In Acts fifteen, he goes to Jerusalem. Verse fifteen uh, Acts fifteen, verse two, when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others should go up to Jerusalem. 
uh, verse 3, therefore being sent on their way by the church. They were passing through Phoenicia and Samaria. So Luke says Paul goes to Jerusalem for the Jerusalem council because the church sent him there. But Paul in Galatians 2, verse 2, it was because of a revelation that I went up. It was because God revealed something to me that I went to Jerusalem. So which of these is true? Both. How can both of them be true? Depends on historical narrative or actual events. Okay. Okay. So yeah, you're harmonizing the two accounts, right? So the church, you could say from Luke's perspective, if, if the church sent him, maybe they had prayed about this, and then they determined we're going to send Paul and Barnabas down to Jerusalem. And that's what they decided. But Paul could also receive a revelation from God saying, you need to go to Jerusalem. Um, that's not completely implausible. Uh, John MacArthur said, It is possible that the Holy Spirit spoke to the leaders of the Antioch church along with Paul, just as he had done with Paul and Barnabas when they were commissioned for the first missionary journey. That happened in Acts 13, verse 2. This sounds remarkably similar. He says, While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them to. So just, yes. Okay. Yeah. For Paul, I would say it may have been something audible. I don't know that it would, I don't think I would agree that it would be audible for the entire church. And for the church, they would probably just, yeah. For Paul, I would say yes, that's a possibility, but we don't actually know how it happened. So he did hear an audible voice on the Damascus Road. He certainly did. He heard an audible voice on the Damascus Road. So that is a possibility for Paul, and I wouldn't exclude that. Can well, you give one to as well? So I would I would have to say that if God spoke to him, he would he would put it in the scripture. Yeah. Because that would make it more powerful. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know, as a Christian, when you know God is speaking to you, uh, you just know. It's, it's, it's not like a I feel thing. You just know He's speaking to you, and it's pretty clear. Yeah. So the, the, the church there could have spoken to Paul, and Paul said, Hey, look, the Lord told me this is what I need to do. And the church said, Okay, we'll send you. Yeah. Right? Why would Paul tell the uh, his his readers in Galatia that he had a revelation from God and Luke not put that in there. What's Paul's point of including that? Does he need to tell them he had a revelation from God to go to Jerusalem? Why couldn't he just say the church sent me? It makes it more powerful that he's going for a reason. Okay. That's what I would think. It does make it more powerful. Why would he want it to be more powerful? Because he's going for a reason. He has God's authority. God's authority. Guiding, 
You know, think about the argument of the book of Galatians. He's arguing about against Judaizers. And these Judaizers are questioning the gospel that he preached. They're questioning whether or not he's an accurate teacher. Galatians 1, 8 and 10, he says, Anyone who preaches another gospel is to be accursed. Galatians 1, verse 15, he says, I was set apart by God for the ministry. He's defending his apostolic ministry. Verses 16 and 17, he says, After I was converted, I didn't go and consult with flesh and blood about whether or not I should teach. But I went away to Arabia. And he spent three years being discipled by Christ. After that's over, Galatians 1, verse 18, he presents himself to the other apostles. He spends, I think, 15 days with the other apostles. And he names Peter. And he says, I met with the elders and the apostles that, at that time. And he wants the Galatians to know that he met with them. Why? Because he's not acting arrogantly. This is not Paul doing this. And he even tells them, what I brought to you was given to me by the Holy Spirit. Um, yeah. Where am I? And so when he gets to Antioch and he talks to them, it's, he says, it was a revelation that I went up to Jerusalem. I was told by God to go to Jerusalem, and I went to Jerusalem, and here's the conclusions of the Jerusalem Council. What you guys are saying is wrong. And so he says this was a revelation of God because it gives him the authority to turn around to the Galatians and say, you guys are wrong. This is not true. Luke doesn't need to include that in his historical narrative. It's not necessary. Um, I got ahead of myself. Okay, what's the second contradiction they point to? Was the council public or private? Um, Galatians 2.2. 2. He says, I, And I submitted to them the gospel which I had preached among the Gentiles, but I did so in private to those who were of reputation. Paul discusses the Jerusalem council, and he says, I, It's a private meeting. Acts 15, verse 22, Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch. So when the Jerusalem council gets together and they decide what they're going to do and they're going to send some men with this letter, they do it publicly with the church. Paul says it was a private meeting. Luke says it was a public meeting. What do you guys think? Both. It's a publicly private meeting. <laughs> <laughs> it's a publicly secret meeting. Okay. I I think the. I was just going to say it also. But how do you define private? Yeah. I, yeah. I, I, yeah I, I'm I'm saying publicly private because. You, you invited a group of people and now you're teaching them and mm -hmm. you're going to send it out publicly. It's in private for the lesson publicly to be dispensed of. Okay. 
Yeah, so there is there is kind of a both and. Paul likely had a private meeting with the men who were of reputation, Peter, James, John, the, the leading apostles. And he says he went there and submitted to them the gospel which I preached among the Gentiles. And he says, but I did so in private. Why would he do it in private? Because he's not arrogant. And he even says, for fear that I might be running in vain, or had run in vain. <coughs> so he's been preaching to the Gentiles, you guys can be saved by faith, you don't need to become Jews. And then he comes back and he hears all these people telling him, that's wrong. And Paul says, have I been running in vain? I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to check with the other apostles. And he goes and he meets with the other apostles privately. And once the private meeting is over and he's affirmed that you've got this right, then they have a public meeting and that meeting is open to everyone where they all have their, their opinions set. Does that make sense? Does it have to be a contradiction? So the right answer there is complimentary. You already knew that. Okay. Let's do the second one. Um, this is out of Luke 2.49, if you want to turn there. Luke 2.49. Uh, this is at the end of Luke 2. Jesus and his family go to Jerusalem. They go to Jerusalem for Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Verse 43, And as they were returning, after spending the full number of days, that would be seven, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents were unaware of it. Jesus sticks around and stays back in Jerusalem to hang out in the temple. His parents, supposing him to be in the caravan, and went a day's journey, and they began looking for him among the relatives and acquaintances. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. Then after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking questions. Now this seems a little odd. You just left your kid behind for several days? How did you get a day's journey out and not realize your kid was missing? You know the answer? You have to understand the culture at that time. It's like village culture that... I experienced when I was in Papua New Guinea, those people take care of other people's kids. Yeah. It's not uncommon for someone to even have a baby and give it to someone else and say, this is now your baby. Yeah. yeah. So they were traveling in a caravan. You didn't just jump in the minivan. I know there's minivans called caravans, but you didn't just jump in, jump in the minivan. You, you traveled in a group. And it actually says there in verse 44, supposing him to be in the caravan, and when they didn't see him, they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. They just assumed he's somewhere in the caravan. And he's with us. And so they get a day's journey out and they find out, well, he's not with us. So they take another day's journey back and then they spend three days in Jerusalem looking for him. This is now five days they cannot find their son. They should have put it on Facebook. They would have found him right away. <laughs> yeah, just send out a tweet. Hey, we're looking for this... Yeah. No, yeah, but you know what? I I can so, still see. I can see the worry now the parents would have after they got back and were looking for him, and I can see what Christ said. Well, you should have looked for me in my father's house. Yeah. Because that's where I'm at. 
That's where we're going. Yeah. Okay. That's where we're going. So his parents get back to Jerusalem after five days of missing their son. A little displeased. Verse 48, when they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us in this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. Our kid has been missing for five days, and we finally found him. And he said to them, Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? And it is that last phrase right there, in my father's house, that is the interpretive problem. It's a problem because if you read the Greek, the Greek says something like, um, I had to be in the of my father. Graphically illustrated. In the of my father. There's no word there. There's not a big space either like I have it here. That's just for... But there's no, there's no word there. It literally says, in the of my father. And if you look in the NASB, you'll notice house is in italics. It's added. And so the question is, what's supposed to be there? Everything. <laughs> <laughs> father is everything, so... Okay. Well, you know what? Most languages talk differently than us. Yeah. They say what they're going to say first, and then... You know, it's all backwards in right. my mind, right. and so I think part of that would be the mode of speech, and it was inferred in the of my house would have been inferred house. Okay, I like the way you're thinking. You're you're, you're right on it. Um, this isn't a textual variant. The author intentionally leaves the word out, and he leaves it out because he assumes that you can read the context and infer the answer. And he leaves the word out to save space. He's got a scroll. He only has so much room he can write in. And he's going to save space by leaving this word out. This is not uncommon. And so some people say the right answer here is family. I had to be in my father's family. Another way to say it. It's more important for me to be with my spiritual family right now than with you. Can you imagine a 12-year-old boy telling his parents that? They know who he is. They do know who he is. Okay, so what are what's the problem with that view? It doesn't line up. Frank, do they really know who he is at this point? Would you say Mary I mean, does? Mary does because she's Mary, yeah. Mary and Joseph because Joseph even had yeah, dreams from from the Lord about it. Yeah. So I think they they know fully. And then when they go to they take him to the temple to bless him. Mm-hmm. What did uh, what was his name? Simeon. What what was his statements about him the salvation of the lord yeah and so i think they know fully who he is and so for him to turn back and say i had to be with my spiritual family well who's in the temple scribes pharisees lawyers all the people who would eventually kill him is that his spiritual family not necessarily those would be the exact same ones would it that killed him it would be it would be a spiritual family in the sense that they were teaching the Old Testament, and as a Jew, that's where they were at. Yeah. So he's he's preparing, I would imagine, because we don't know what the discussion was. Yeah. But he's got to be preparing his way, and he's probably heavy on Isaiah and all that, showing these Jewish people. 
you know, who he is and how he got here. Yeah. Later he would say to of his apostles and disciples, you are my family. And, and that was in distinction from the Pharisees and the Jewish leadership. It's the Jewish leadership in the temple that would push for his death and oppose him. And so are there some in the Jewish temple that would likely support him later? Probably. Is there, is there a word difference, though? He said spiritual family and family. Is there a word difference? Well, because the church here is my family. Yeah. The only way we can determine this is based on the context. Okay. That's and, what I'm asking. Yeah. The, again, none of these words actually appear in the text. And so we have to, based on context, we have to determine which one's the best. So the first argument against family would be that's really not his family spiritual or otherwise. The second argument is, is that the question that was asked of him? Was it asked, why are you here? The question that he was answering, verse 49, why is it that you were looking for me? The question his parents had was, where are you? And he's answering the question, where he is. So saying he's with his family doesn't fit with the preposition in. He's not in his family, he's with his family. Even if you say it's his family. Does that make sense? Everybody follow me? The two most likely candidates are going to be things or house. Things you could say is like business. I had to be about my father's business. Um, 1 Timothy 4, verse 15, Paul tells young Timothy, uh, take pains with these things, the, the business he's been given to do. Uh, the authorized version actually uses this. It says, I must be about my father's business. Again, the biggest problem with this is it doesn't answer the question. Yes? I must be in my father's house. He's actually in his father's house. The previous father was a figure of speech who he's being raised with. Yeah, you guys are like way ahead of me. (laughs) You guys are way ahead of me. They were asking, Hmm. why are you anxious? And he answered the anxious answer. You shouldn't be anxious because I'm in my father's house. This yeah. is where I would be. This yeah. is where you should have expected me to be. And then yeah. the father gets up and slaps him one and says, don't back talk me. No. <laughs> yeah, so he had to be, this has to be referring to his location. And by saying about my father's business, again, doesn't fit with the context. Right. It's asking where is he? And he is in his father's house. As it's already been said, house would refer to his temple, the temple of his father. Uh, I. Howard Marshall said, this is required by the context since the point at issue is where Jesus is to be found. Leon, huh? That's true, because 40, 49 says, been anxiously looking for you. Right. Okay. So the best answer is going to be house, in the house of my father. I think that's the one that best fits the context. 
Just out of curiosity, I'm, I'm, I can't think of one off the top of my head, but is there something in the Old Testament that would have, you know, among all the prophecies that would have said something along the lines of, as a child, I will be, you know, he will be in his father's business or he will be sit in the temple as, as a child. I can't think of anything. I don't know of any prophecy that says that. My point being, I'm wondering, is there something in the Old Testament prophecies about this coming Messiah that someone, they could look at and say, oh, it was prophesied that as a kid he'd be found. Yeah, I don't. I, I, I can't think of any. I don't know of any. Uh, a good place to, be, to look is on uh, biblical doctrine. They have a list of all the messianic prophecies. And I haven't seen one like that, but that would be interesting to see if yeah. there is one. Yeah, nothing comes to mind. Yeah. But, but I guess you would have to look at the whole thing of being a day, days out, days back, looking for him. Yeah. And then they finally find him and they go, well, we've been looking hard for you. Why? What are you doing here? Yeah, yeah. What are you doing here? And he says, well, you should have looked here first. Yeah. And you have to put yourself in their shoes. Yeah. Their kid is missing for five days. Uh, Everybody would be a little worried by that point, right? Okay, we need to keep moving here. Um, let's do the third one. This is out of Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. And we're actually going to be looking at verse 18. But I do want to give you some context here. Luke 10, it starts with the 70 being sent out. Would, somebody, would someone be willing to read Luke 10 verses 1 through 4? Anybody want to read? Yeah, I'll get it. I gotta get there. Oh, I'm I'm moving too fast. I'm sorry. Luke ten. Yes, sir. One through four. Luke ten. Come on. Someone else read. I haven't got it yet. Okay. okay. Now after this, the Lord appointed seventy others and sent them in pairs ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. And he said to them, The harvest is plenty, but the laborers. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go, behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money belt, no bag, no shoes, and greet no one on the way. Okay, thank you. He's appointing his disciples. He's sending them out. He's sending them out to preach. And as part of their preaching, they're going to perform signs and wonders. They're going to perform healings. And part of healings would include casting out demons. Uh, verses 8 and 9. Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat what is set before you. And heal those in it who are sick. And say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. That's what they're assigned to do. And Jesus finished instructing them in verse 16. You'll notice the quotation ends there at the end of verse 16. Between 16 and 17, the disciples go out and preach. Verse 17 picks up again when they come back. Notice what they say when they come back. The 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. The Lord commissioned them. He empowered them to go out to heal. And they come back with joy saying, Lord, you've given us power and even the spirits are subject to us. Verses 19 and 20, Jesus tells them, I've given you power over demons, over spirits. 
Look at verse 18. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. That's our key verse right there. I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. What does he mean here when he says, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning? There are three views. Historic, inceptive, and prophetic. The historic view is based off Isaiah 14. and Basically what this says is Jesus is talking about something he personally watched. He watched Satan fall from heaven. When Satan was kicked out, Jesus was there and he observed it. The NASB, I think, translates this correctly when, he, when it says, I was watching. That's an imperfect verb. It describes continuous action. He was watching this happen. And the fall, fall from heaven, that verb is erist. It's a past tense verb. It shows a completed action in the past. So this was a one-time event that Jesus watched happen completely. Does that make sense? Everybody with me? It's based off a verse out of Isaiah 14, verse 12. When the sun of the morning falls from heaven. That verse. And so they say this is what Jesus is referring to. Jesus watched Satan fall from heaven in the past. In eternity past when the angels fell. Uh, 14, 12. What's the biggest problem here? Well, I, I, I got a question before we get to the problem. Is this before he started talking in, in parables or after? Um, I think this might be after. Pretty sure this can be after. Okay. Now your question? Yeah. What's the biggest problem with saying this is a historic thing based off Isaiah 14, 12? Okay, Revelation hadn't been written yet. One of the big problems here is that not everybody agrees Isaiah 14, 12 is talking about Satan. That's probably the biggest one. And so your view of Isaiah 14, 12 is really going to be key in whether or not you embrace the historic view. Then there's the inceptive view. I know that's a weird word. But essentially what this says is that it is continual. And it views Satan falling from heaven as a process. That when the disciples went out and started preaching and exercising demons, Jesus was watching Satan being conquered through their preaching and teaching. What's the problem with that one? It's past tense. Yeah, the, the, the fall was past. It's already happened. There is one problem. What's another problem with it? Yeah, that's the context is a huge problem. The context doesn't say um, Satan is falling. The context says you have power over Satan. 
I have given you this power. Verse 17, they came back with joy. They had power over the demons. Verse 18, Jesus had seen uh, saw Satan fall from heaven. Verse 19, Satan lost his power over the disciples. Verse 20, the spirits are subject to you. The context here isn't talking about something inceptive where they are gaining power over Satan. It says they have power over him. It's not a process. This was a one-time event. The final view here is prophetic. Um, this is speaking of a future event as though it's already happened. Um, there's a grammar grammatical term called proleptic. Ooh, ooh, ooh. What's that? It's one of his ominies. <laughs> he can see the future and the past all at once. Something like that. Yeah, in Romans 8, those who have been called have been justified. Those who have been justified will be glorified. Have been glorified. It's talking about future events in the past tense. It's so certain that it's going to happen. I'm going to speak about it as though it's already happened. Because and, he knows it's already happened for him. Right. This view says that this is prophetic, that he's looking forward into the future, that this will happen at the end time, that Satan will finally fall out of heaven. Um, and again, you have the same problem that you do with the inceptive view. The, the context does not say they will have power. It says they currently have power over him. They currently rule over the spirits, not they will. And so I don't think that the prophetic or the inceptive work, I think the best answer here is historic. And at this point, I do take Isaiah 14, 12 to talk about Satan. But that's... So when are we going to get the serpents and the scorpions in here? Uh, that's uh, from Mark 16, and that is not part of the original. Okay, we need to keep moving here. <laughs> All right, this next one is out of uh, Luke 17, 21. Luke 17, 21, and we're back to the discussion on the kingdom. Uh, let's start in verse 20. Now, having been questioned by the Pharisees, as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered and said to them, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. And he said to the disciples, The days will come when you will long to see the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. They will say to you, Look there, look here. Do not go away, and do not run after them. For just as just like... The lightning, when it flashes out of one part of the sky, shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. All right. The question is out of verse 21. What does he mean by the kingdom of God is within you? Well, he said it in, in their midst in this translation. Yeah. Okay. Different translations take different views on this. Okay. One view says that the kingdom of God is inside of you. That it's something spiritual, that it comes into you. And John MacArthur actually argues for this view. He takes a dual view of the kingdom. He says the kingdom is both spiritual and physical. And when you become a part of the kingdom, you get the kingdom inside of you. Now, how does he make that from the text? The way he does that is in verse 21... <laughs> Or verses 20 and 21, 
he says that Jesus is not talking to only the Pharisees. He's talking to the people that are there with the Pharisees as well, and some of those include some people who would be believers, and so the kingdom of God is within them, not necessarily the Pharisees. But it says in verse 20, he is talking to the Pharisees. Yes. The text says, what MacArthur says here is, yeah, it, it misses the point of the text. The text says the Pharisees asked a question. And then it says Jesus answered the question. And the Greek word he uses there means he answered them. And the only antecedent to them is the Pharisees. So this is a direct response to the Pharisees. And so to say, well, the kingdom of God is within you, if you're a believer, that doesn't work for the Pharisees. They're not in the kingdom. They're not believers. And Jesus was there, so he was in their midst. Right. Got it. Um, I'm missing something here. Where is it? The other problem is in Luke 21, 31, where, if you want to look at that, it, it says the kingdom of God is near not in your midst, not in you, excuse me. Secondly, this is a dramatic change in how the New Testament talks about the kingdom. If you take this as being the kingdom is inside of you, it's a complete shift from the way the rest of the Gospels talk about the kingdom. The rest of the Gospels do not say that the kingdom is something that comes inside of you. The kingdom is something that you go into. And so, it's a complete twisting of what the Bible says about the kingdom. Leon Morris, the kingdom is essentially inward in your hearts, but this would be unparalleled in the Gospels. I don't know how they even get there if you read the verse before it. Yeah. This is part of the whole, the spiritual kingdom, the kingdom's not a literal thing. Um, yeah, but they're picking very, and choosing without reading context. I agree. I do agree. Uh, I. Howard Marshall, I'm going to give you this quote because it feeds into the next one. Jesus speaks of men entering the kingdom, not of the kingdom, kingdom entering men. A different translation is demanded and is not difficult to find. And he talks about the plural noun means among, in the midst of. Jesus is speaking of the presence of the kingdom of God among men, possibly as something within their grasp, if they would only take hold of it. And that's the next view. When he says the kingdom is in you or among you, he's talking about the kingdom is within your grasp. And this assumes that this is another offer of the kingdom. That Jesus is once again going to the Jewish people saying, I will give you the kingdom if you would just respond correctly. If you would just repent of your sin. But you know what, You're going back to the last one, where he was talking about, uh, so you, uh, it says, you know, he says, he's talking about the future kingdom because he says, when you start seeing these things, that I've, that's where the Jews missed it in Isaiah. They All those clues they missed when Christ showed up, and now he's giving them new clues to when he's going to return, and they're probably going to miss that one too. Yeah. The, the, the problem here is, while this is grammatically possible, you can make this argument from the text, it doesn't actually answer his, the question that they asked him. It, 
for him to respond back to them, the kingdom is within your reach. Or you can, if you respond correctly, doesn't answer his question, when is the kingdom coming? And he's telling them, I'm right here. It's within your reach. Yeah. Well, that's not what that's not what the position says. That's actually the next well, one. Well, the, the whole um, point is they're picking and choosing. They are. Yeah, You're right. I, I'm I'm not arguing with you on that. They are picking and choosing, but um, the best answer I think is the last one in your midst among you. And in that view, it's Jesus that he's referring to himself. Uh, just like if uh, when I was in the military, you, you go on board a ship, if the captain shows up. They don't say, the captain is arriving. They announce it over the intercom. They don't say, the captain is arriving. They say, the name of the ship is arriving. So I was on the San Jacinto. The San, Jac- San Jacinto arriving huh. is how they would announce it. He is the representative. He is the leader of that ship. And so he is identified with the ship. And the same is true with the President of the United States. When he goes to the UN, they say, the United States has arrived. Not all 320 million citizens, but the president has arrived. And so here, Jesus turns as the king. It's his kingdom, and he says to them, the kingdom is within your midst. I'm standing right here. You don't need to look for me. I'm already here. Uh, this also fits with uh, Luke eleven twenty. If you want to look at that later, you can. We are running out of time. We need to move. Um, okay, any questions there? All right. This next one, we don't need to spend a whole lot of time on it, is the first one in Acts. The speeches in Acts. Here's the question. Are the speeches of Acts actual reproductions? Transcripts? Are they accurate summaries that give accurate details but not all details? Or are they inventions of the writer? Any of these you guys can eliminate real quick? Three. Number three, let's get rid of that one. Okay, number one and two are going to be the hard ones. Are they actual reproductions where he writes down everything the person said? Or are they accurate summaries where he summarizes accurately what was said? Say accurate reproductions. Accurate reproductions? Yep. Reproductions? Anybody want to say an accurate summary? Okay. Well, this is kind of a trick question because I'm going to say both. <laughs> some of them are accurate summaries and by summaries we don't mean he's going to put it into his own words and summarize it we mean he's going to write down the parts of the speech that are relevant it would be like taking a part of Pastor Michael's sermon and you just take one paragraph out of it it's an accurate summary of the sermon because that paragraph summarizes the whole thing an, actu- an actual reproduction would be he writes down everything that was said and there are some speeches and acts that was likely true. So I'm going to say number one and number two. Yeah, I agree with that. Okay. Because when, when he says what he really just said, then it becomes quotes. Yeah. Uh, this next one is out of Acts chapter 2. These get a little harder to do. The opening of Acts 2 describes the day of Pentecost. We're going to be in Acts 2, 16 through 21. Acts 2, verses 1 through 4. I I do want to... Pentecost came, verse 2, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. 
And there appeared to, to them tongues of fire distributing themselves as they rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Other tongues here would be other languages. They were speaking languages that they did not know. Verse 6, the crowd was astonished. And they were bewildered because each of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are all the why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? These are Galileans. How is it that they know my language? And how is it that they can speak it so perfectly? What languages were they were speaking? Verse 9, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene and the visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. They were all hearing what was being said in their own language. And then verse 11, same thing. Verse 12, they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? What are we supposed to get out of this? Verse 13, but others were mocking and saying, they are full of sweet wine. That had to be mocking because I don't know anyone who speaks another language that they don't know when they're drunk. That just doesn't seem like the normal behavior for someone who's intoxicated. So here's the challenge. From there, Peter stands up, raised his voice, and, and declared to them, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this, speaking of what was going on, is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And then he quotes Joel 2, 28-32. And for the sake of time, I don't have time to read through all of that. But there's a couple things I want to point out there. Notice verse 17. I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind. Uh, verse 19. I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. What is Joel talking about? End times, the second coming of Christ, the day of the Lord. That's Joel's context. Now the question is, why is Peter using it? Some say that it is a fulfillment of Joel. Acts 2 is a fulfillment of what Joel was saying. What do you guys think? Is that a complete fulfillment of what Joel was saying? It, yeah, it can't be a complete one, right? Because there's a whole bunch of that that wasn't done. Some say it's a partial fulfillment. And I kind of see where that one is made. My problem with that is, verse 17, I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. Is that done? Not until the kingdom. I will grant signs in the skies of heaven and on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. That wasn't done in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. The sun will be turned into darkness, the moon into blood. That wasn't done on the Pentecost either. So it's hard to say, if you're going to say this as a partial fulfillment, it's hard to make the argument because there's a whole bunch here that isn't done. A potential fulfillment. The word potential knocks that one out. That... <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. Um, I would say that this is probably going to be a future fulfillment or a preview of future fulfillment. Peter's goal is evangelistic, and if you read this within its context, this makes perfect sense. 
He's evangelizing. Acts 2, verse 22, he tells them about Jesus, and he reminds them, you guys crucified the Messiah. Acts 2, 36, he says, God made Jesus Lord and Christ. He made him Lord and the Messiah, and you killed him. Acts 2, verse 37, the people responded. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And the very next statement is, Repent. Peter's message was evangelistic, and he uses Joel 2 to evangelize. And the argument he's essentially making is, judgment is coming, and you're going to have a problem. And everything that you've seen here so far of them speaking in these foreign languages is supposed to bring you to repentance. 1 Corinthians 14, 21-22, Paul says, tongues are assigned for who? unbelievers, to remind them this was promised to you in the Old Testament. Isaiah 28, 11, God promised that foreign people will come and speak to you, stammering lips, that prophecy. And that was a reminder to them of judgment. When they heard other people speaking in tongues, they should have said, uh-oh, judgment is coming. This is a preview of what's coming in the future. Make sense? Oh my goodness. Okay. Acts 2.38 is our next passage. Basically, the question here is this. When he says, be baptized, what does he mean by the imperative? Is he saying that baptism is necessary for you to be forgiven? Some would argue that point and say yes. But when they argue that point, they're not arguing for baptismal regeneration. They're essentially saying it's necessary for Jews to be baptized at that time. Kind of a weird view. The second view is baptism on the basis of forgiveness. You are to be baptized when you are forgiven. Does that sound like a good one? Yeah. That sounds like a good one, and that is the position that MacArthur takes on this. He says this is going to be baptism on the basis of forgiveness. Um, it is true that forgiveness comes before baptism, or at least it should. But that's not what this text is saying. This text links repentance and baptism, not forgiveness and baptism. Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized. You, re you are baptized after you repent. Repentance brings about forgiveness. The emphasis here is on repentance. That's, and that's exactly what Christ did with the thief on the cross. It was, he believed, he repented, right. paradise. And, and so that's the emphasis here in this text. Number two is not theologically wrong. It's correct. Baptism on the basis of forgiveness. But in this particular text, the emphasis is on baptism as a result of repentance. Um, Acts 3.19, Therefore repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away. Forgiveness there is based solely on repentance. And so that's, that's the interpretive challenge. This is going to be, baptism is parenthetical. Only repentance is going to be necessary. Does that make sense? Okay. Uh, okay, let's do this last one. This one's um, a difficult one. Uh, this is out of Acts 15. Acts 15 is the Jerusalem Council again. 
The debate here is on whether Gentiles need to become Jews before they can be Christians. James stands up in Acts 15, verse 15, and he begins to speak. And he makes his case by using Amos 9, verses 11 and 12. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to read Acts 15, 13 through 18. But in verse 15, he says, With this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. And then he quotes from Amos, After these things I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known, uh, known from long ago. The question is, what does he mean here in verse 15 when he says, All the prophets agree? That's the question. What does he mean by that? Is he saying that Acts 15 is a fulfillment of the prophecy of Amos? And so here's how this would work. They would say, Amos is saying that God will allow Israel to return from exile, Babylonian exile. They'll go back, they'll rebuild the temple, the house of David, and once that's rebuilt, the Messiah would come and he would offer to the Gentiles salvation. That's already happened. And this prophecy of Amos is a prophecy concerning the church and Jews and Gentiles becoming the church. And Israel and the church are now the same. Israel, or the church, is the new Israel. But the problem here is that interpretation is based solely on verse 15. When he says the prophets agree, that's assuming that what he's saying there is the prophet is fulfilled. And he does. there is a specific word in Greek used for fulfillment, to talk about a prophecy being fulfilled. That word is not used in verse 15. The word he uses is to agree with, to be like, to match, to be in harmony with. I'm going to skip number two for a second. The third view here is a chronological view. This is a weird view. I'm going to be honest with you. Verse 14, God has this concern for the people, for the Gentile nations, and he wants them to be saved. That's the current day. Then he will return in the future. He'll rebuild the temple. Then in the kingdom, Gentiles will be able to be saved as Gentiles. Kind of weird, isn't it? The second view essentially says this. God had a concern for the Gentiles to be saved as Gentiles. That's the truth of what is happening right now. God is saving Gentiles. He's saving them as Gentiles, not as Jews. And we know that because in verses 7 and 8, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice between you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear, verse nine, verse 8, they were being saved. Gentiles were being saved as Gentiles. Verse, uh, Acts, uh, where am I? <laughs> Acts 15, verse 15, he says, With this the prophets agree. God right now is saving Gentiles as Gentiles, and if you go into the Old Testament, it says God will save Gentiles as Gentiles. They don't need to become Jews. And then he points to Amos 9. Amos 9 is a promise to 
Israel, but it's a promise about the future. It's a promise about the millennial kingdom. That in the millennial kingdom, Gentiles will be saved as Gentiles. They don't have to become Jews. So here's the argument. God is saving Gentiles today in the same way that He will save Gentiles in the future. And the prophets prove this. And they will be saved as Gentiles. They don't have to be Jews. And on that basis, the Jerusalem Council turns around and says, you Gentiles don't need to get circumcised. That's a really confusing point. Did everyone follow that explanation? Uh, kind of. Yeah, yeah. But verse 17 says, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. That's Gentiles, yeah. That would be the Gentiles. So, okay, we are over time. If you have any questions, feel free to see me. If you don't have the handouts from the previous weeks, I have a couple extra up here. So let me pray real quick and we'll be done. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time together. We ask that you would bless our worship this morning that would be pleasing to you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.